Good afternoon and welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center. The Eco News Report is brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, Eco News. And I have a very special guest joining me in the studio today, Colin Fisk, Executive Director of the Coalition for Responsible Transportation Priorities, which is a mouthful. Hey, Colin, welcome to the studio. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Colin, we are going to talk about sustainable transportation planning today, which is a subject near and dear to your heart. It's probably not a subject that many people have thought about. I'm always kind of shocked at the lack of awareness of planning, the role that planning plays really in our day-to-day lives. So let's start off. Let's find out a little bit more information about you. Tell us who you are, Colin, and why are you so interested in transportation planning? Well, I'm interested in transportation planning for a number of different reasons. I think it's, it's, it's an area where just a lot of factors that affect our daily lives and also the broader picture of where we are as a society sort of come together. So environmental issues, community issues, economic issues are all integrally tied into transportation, although we don't talk about it that much. So like one of the reasons that I'm particularly interested in transportation is climate change. And so, you know, transportation in California has probably forever been the, the, the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions. And it in the last several years, overtook energy generation, I believe, as the biggest source for the country as a whole. So it's in order to tackle climate change, we're going to need to tackle our transportation system. And one of the things that interests me about it is I think that a lot of things that we can do to reduce the greenhouse gas footprint of our transportation system are also things that will improve our communities and our economies, especially our local economies. So sort of finding that sweet spot is one of the things that CRTP is trying to do. All right. So if I if I were to sum up the the weight that we can best reduce our our greenhouse gas footprint, would it just be to drive less? That would be probably the biggest thing, yeah. Drive less. And so then we we make choices in planning that affect how much we drive. And that that's one of the things that's been really interesting for me to learn about. In full disclosure, I'm on the board of the Coalition for Responsible Transportation Priorities, so I'm not an unbiased observer here. But to, to learn about how we can set up development in such a way that we'll need to drive more or less. So if we have sprawly suburbs where you don't have commercial services nearby within walking distance, if we don't provide people walkable neighborhoods, good sidewalks, then people are naturally going to get into their car and drive more. And so that, that's been one of the fun things for me to, to learn about is just how many small decisions that don't seem related to transportation planning result in us spending more hours of our day every day or every week or every year in our car, kind of sitting in traffic, going from one place to another, when we could design cities, design towns, communities, that are walkable and livable, where we don't have to drive as much. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. I think a lot of times in the environmental movement, it's it can be easy to slide into trying to hold individuals accountable for their choices and their actions, which is important. But usually, and certainly in transportation, there's a bigger picture. As you're suggesting, the way the way we design collectively, design our landscapes and develop our, our cities and towns 
has a huge impact on what options are available to people as far as transportation, as well as what options are easier or more difficult for them to take. So I think you hit on a big thing, probably the biggest thing, which is density versus sprawl. And so the closer that things are together, you know, the more the more that we have people, uh, the population, you know, concentrated in, in cities and towns and smaller communities, as opposed to just spread out, and that they that people live near where there are services, near where there's stores to buy things, and, you know, health care, and jobs, and, you know, all the things that they need to, to travel to, the less people need to get in their cars, the more they can utilize, well, just walk, or bike, or utilize public transportation. There are other things, too, for example, just how we design the transportation infrastructure itself. So if we don't have adequate sidewalks or we don't have bike lanes or trails or paths and people are forced to use, you know, infrastructure that was designed for another mode of transportation, namely the car, that becomes both, you know, less comfortable, less convenient and also less safe. And that's something people are you know, very reasonably concerned about. So I think, for example, there's been a bit of research done on why why people choose to use a bicycle or not. And the biggest the biggest thing that drives people who are interested in bicycling but don't, the biggest thing that keeps them from getting on a bike is being uncomfortable or afraid for their safety. And so making people feel more comfortable by providing better infrastructure and also there's there's a case to be made for changing some of our laws, but that makes a huge difference in what choices people make. So you you've talked about kind of one half of the the tools that we have in our toolbox to to get people to do more, and th- there's another half as well. So there's incentives and disincentives. So I, what you've been talking about, I, I like to think of as kind of the what is that movie? If you build it, they will come. Field of dreams. Field of dreams. The field of dreams effect, right? So if you have a nicely developed bike path, then lo and behold, people are going to start thinking, hey, that looks like a lovely place for me to ride my bike, for me and my kids to go for a little bit of recreation or for me to get to the store. And I feel safe there. You know, the bike path is well marked. It's nicely separated from lines of traffic. I'm going to get out my old my old 10 speed out of the garage and I'm going to grease it up and fill up the tires and I'm going to hop on that bike. So that's one important part of, of the transportation planning world. There's also this other part that I think that we don't like to really talk about, mm-hmm. which is the disincentives part. And sometimes we need to make driving actually bear the, the social costs that it imparts on our, our communities. So, Parking, for example, we have tons of land that is owned by the public that is devoted for housing private individuals, is cars, car storage. And so that that cost is is kind of borne back onto the drivers through gas taxes. But really, that that loss of public land, that kind of interference with with neighborhoods isn't fully incorporated into the cost of gas or incorporated into the cost of anything else. So could you talk a little bit more about about disincentives and how maybe how an overabundance of parking encourages greater driving? Yeah. So I think, you know, we're finally getting to the point in transportation planning where planners, for the most part, accept 
the concept of induced demand, which has been well demonstrated through research, which is that, like you said, if you build it, they will come. If you build better car infrastructure, more people will drive. If you build more convenient bike and walking infrastructure, more people will do those things. But I think we haven't quite gotten to the point where it's widely accepted that the, op- the opposite or the inverse is true. And there is, there is research showing that it is. Well, I mean, for example, there have been several cases of major highways that were built through cities in, say, the 50s and were later decommissioned torn down. And before, you know, when that happened, people invariably said, well, there's going to be traffic jams, you know, for days. Where are all those cars going to go? And in fact, people drove less is what happened. And those major traffic jams didn't materialize. But we haven't quite incorporated those lessons because, like you said, it's much easier to provide something positive like a bike lane than it is to take away something that people feel is theirs right now, like a lane of car travel. So I think there there is other research on parking too and parking is a really important one that if you if you if you charge people for parking a market rate then less people will park you can charge a rate that will ensure that there's you know always say a space or two open on a block and that means people aren't constantly driving around looking for a parking space and people will make choices of their their transportation options based in part on whether they're willing to pay that price and like you said although there are mechanisms in place for theoretically ensuring that drivers pay for their own infrastructure i think all you have to do is read the news to know that that the gas tax and other mechanisms don't pay for transportation infrastructure fully. We have, just in Humboldt County, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of deferred maintenance on the roads. And that's certainly true on an even grander scale throughout the state and the country. So I think people, drivers are not paying the full cost of their, just of the infrastructure upkeep. And I think it's also important to note, though, that driving as a primary mode of transportation has other costs other than just the the infrastructure upkeep. There's the pollution impacts, global warming, as well as more localized pollutants, health-harming pollutants. There's also less talked about social impacts. So, for example, the longer that a person spends in a car on a commute, there have been that's been correlated with all sorts of negative social outcomes, really unexpected things like higher rates of divorce, higher rates of depression. There's a greater likelihood that your child will be in a gang. I mean, also, I mean, it's a, it's crazy, right? But, but really it's, you're spending, you're spending more time alone and less time in your community, I think is what it comes down to. And cars are a very isolating way of mode of travel. So that has a lot of negative effects. And there's also, there's also studies that show that busier streets have less sense of community, less social connections, because the streets form a, a barrier, cars driving by form a barrier, that an actual physical barrier that it's harder for people to cross and, and meet and connect and have face-to-face time. And then there's the fact that collisions are one of the major causes of death in this country, and almost all of those involve vehicles. And one thing I'd also like to point out, because this it was something that came up at a, a recent planning meeting. So the city of Eureka is thinking about H&I streets in the city, which are two one-way streets that cut through the city 
And Eurekans often treat these as little mini highways. They go roaring down these streets. It's a 30 mile an hour speed limit, but I think that that is almost never being adhered to or, (laughs) yeah, being respected. And and so at this community meeting, people were were saying, well, I, I don't see bikers, so why why would we consider putting bike lanes on this street? And, you know, I, I want something done about H&I Street, but what I want done is I want people to, to go slower. I, I, you know, so folks are recognizing that speeding was a problem, but then there's this kind of comprehensive solution, which is a road diet. So reducing the, the total width of lanes and the number of lanes, and then giving up one of those lanes towards pedestrian infrastructure. And by doing that, by reducing the road width, by reducing the number of lanes, you know, our, our weird reptilian brains, we will we will sense that there is kind of maybe not greater danger for cars, but it, it's less it's less designed to go very, very fast. And so people will naturally moderate their speed. So people will drive slower and then you're going to provide the the infrastructure, you'll, you know, build it and they will come. We'll provide the infrastructure for bikers to actually use H&I streets to get places. And so the more that we have bike lanes, the more that bike lanes are interconnected, the more that we have a well-thought-out grid system of of bike travel, the more people will get on their bikes because the more accessible biking will be. Yeah, so, that's that's absolutely true. And, and, you know, just there's a lot of sort of well-known principles just of road design that affect traffic speed. So, and and H&I streets are good examples right now of, you know, wide, straight roads with, you know, no, for the most part, no curves or impediments or anything like that. And that encourages higher speeds. That's just a well-established fact. And so if you, when you make them more narrow, you you know, sort of you do those little bump outs or things like that. And I know people like to laugh at those things, but it actually does slow, slow down traffic. Yeah, it, it's weird. Our, like I said, we have reptilian brains. We, we pick up on things. We may not be realizing that we're picking up on these external mm-hmm. stimuli, but they, mm-hmm. they moderate our behavior. So just to put a cherry on top of this, the Coalition for Responsible Transportation Priorities is not anti-car. What it is is putting cars back in a more appropriate and holistic balance of our transportation needs and uses. Right. I think we – the way I like to put it is that we believe in designing transportation for people, not for cars. That doesn't mean that there's no place for cars. It just means that, you know, historically for the last half century or more, since at least the 1950s, probably earlier, we've we've designed – our transportation infrastructure basically along the assumption that everybody is primarily a driver so we're des- we're designing for cars not for people and when we when we step back and design for people and all the different ways that people can move cars sort of can be put back in in a, in their proper place i think which is you know it's 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 it should be basically a last resort for you to get in a car especially by yourself and drive somewhere and certainly sometimes it's necessary and it's a challenge particularly in a rural area area like ours where you know there's a need for people to live in a dispersed manner if they're for example farmers or you know involved in other resource industries that are that are more dispersed in nature but most people should be more concentrated in in our communities in our towns and the we should be transitioning also 
and this is a little bit of a side note, but towards zero emission vehicles, towards electric vehicles and other types of things that, that aren't burning fossil fuels. All right. Great. All right. You are listening to the Econews Report. I'm your host, Tom Wheeler. I'm speaking with Colin Fisk of the Coalition for Responsible Transportation Priorities. Colin, what's the website if people want to learn more about your work? It's transportationpriorities.org. And while I'm mentioning that, I'd like to also mention that recently we started a weekly local transportation news roundup. So sort of just collecting transportation news items from Humboldt County and to a certain extent the counties around us, as well as relevant statewide news and some national and international stuff that's interesting and may affect us here, and putting it all in one place. And, and we have an email and a list and a blog. And if you're interested in transportation or just the direction that our local communities are going in, I'd recommend everyone go to our website and sign up for that. And you can also submit items if you have things you think we should be covering. It is called The Collector, which is a little bit of a planning joke because that's a type of classification of street that planners use. The joke has only been gotten by by, by Colin. <laughs> it's a joke for Colin's it's, own it's internal a, consumption. I laugh every time, but anyway, so but we're collecting the transportation news, and, and we'd love to hear from anybody who has some. All right. So the first half of the show, we talked broadly about the core principles of sustainable transportation planning. So providing infrastructure for alternative transportation, like walking, biking, rollerblading, whatever. Mass transit. Mass transit. So the idea of if you build it, they will come. And then on, on the flip side, that, that principle of if you build it, they will come is true for cars too. If we have an overbuilt system, we're going to fill that system with cars. So now let's take those broad principles and apply them to specific projects that the coalition is working on. And the one that I am most personally excited by or about is is the vision for the Arcata Plaza. You know, it's the square in the middle of Arcata that is kind of the heart and soul of the town. It's the, the town center and probably about the oldest district in the town. So the coalition has some big ideas for the plaza. Joe, like briefly, what are they? So we last year, last summer, I guess, time flies, we went around and we went into all the businesses on the plaza and, you know, we had the idea that the plaza would work better for people if it was designed, again, more for more for people than for cars. And so right now, for example, we calculated that, well, a very large portion of the actual public space that is the plaza is taken up by parking spaces. And a lot of the rest, if you go further out, is is lanes of travel. And so, and one of the things that we thought is that this, this creates some barriers between people who are patronizing the businesses around the plaza and people who may want to use the plaza as a, as a public space, as a civic space, as a place to just hang out with your family. And so we thought, well, there are steps that we could take to, to make it more welcoming to people. And, but before we did that, we wanted to really get the input of the stakeholders who would perhaps be most affected, which is the businesses immediately on the plaza. So we went around and talked to as many of the business owners and managers as we could get to talk to us. And based on that input and our own research into you know how to design successful public spaces, we came up with a proposal. And that proposal was to turn 
8th and 9th streets on the plaza. Which are the east-west streets on the north and south end. Correct. Into pedestrian-only zones, with the exception of delivery vehicles, and to make G&H streets on the plaza still allow vehicles on them, but make them into what we call pedestrian priority zones. What's what's that funny Dutch word or whatever for these? <laughs> uh, Woonerf. Woonerf. Yeah. yeah. All right. Talk about Woonerfs. So basically what that means is that there are zones where people can walk. You know, you don't have to find a crosswalk or whatever. Pedestrians have the right of way in this area. And that just means that cars can still go there. They can still park. They can still get by. But it's very, it's very slow going. So it sort of discourages car travel. But you would still have the parking available for the businesses and so forth. And... There were some other proposals that we made. We talked with the North Coast Growers Association about making the entire plaza car-free during farmer's markets, and that's a really popular idea. And is that something that is, that's going forward? I think I heard something about that. There, there are some ideas, there are some proposals on the table right now, I believe, to do some trial runs that would be, I think, for the farmer's market as well as extending into the rest of those Saturdays. For, to be car-free for just see how things work out. But so anyway, we ended up submitting a letter to the city council that was signed by not only us, but a number of other organizations and some of the businesses on the plaza. And we have since then been participating with the city's ongoing efforts to sort of rethink the plaza, which started happening more or less at the same time. And, and I think you know, a, a lot of different things happened on the plaza that coincided with our effort, but we've been part of that that push to, to redesign the plaza a bit, make it a better space for families, for civic activities, etc. And right now, the, the city council has approved a plaza improvements task force to come up with recommendations for redesigning the plaza, and we're going to be engaging with that. We're hoping to be represented on the task force, but certainly we're going to be engaging and, and making sure that we advocate for these ideas, which we think, you know, it's that, that intersection of transportation and community that the more we can get people out of their cars, interacting with each other, and the more activities there are for them that are of that nature the more likely it will be to be a successful public space that people feel comfortable going, that they bring their families to, and so forth. And I think that this helps to cure one of the, the kind of common complaints about the plaza, which is the kind of riffraff or whatever you want to call them, some of the antisocial behavior that occurs on the plaza, the public drinking, things things of that nature. And so by by getting people to the plaza, by making it a more accessible place for pedestrians, it's going to increase presence of other people on the plaza. And by giving more activities, one, one of the ideas that was thrown out was maybe we could have actual infrastructure for children to play on. It, if, yeah. you, if you examine the plaza, it's beautiful from from a distance. But when you get up and you actually try to use that area – there's not a whole heck of a lot for you to do. And so one of the problems with the plaza is that, you know, most people just kind of don't use it because there's not the playground infrastructure. Or there's not, there aren't like local vendors or other things that could draw people in. Right. Places to sit and eat outside, outside for example. Yeah. Public art, other than a certain very controversial piece. <laughs> and so I think, which actually makes a lot of people uncomfortable, it turns out. So, yeah, I think, uh, and in terms of 
the problems with it now, we're strongly of the belief that it doesn't have to do with people. It has to do with behaviors. And so the behaviors that are problematic largely have to do with drinking and other drugs. You are listening to the Econews Report. I'm your host, Tom Wheeler. I'm speaking with Colin Fisk of the Coalition for Responsible Transportation Priorities. And so we actually think that part of the reason that that has flourished is because of Ninth Street there that sort of cuts off the the plaza, the, the public civic space of the plaza from Bar Row. And the cars there, the parked cars and the driving cars, create uh, both a visual barrier as well as just a practical barrier for, for movement on foot. A social barrier for a people. A social barrier for people. And that means that you have this concentrated area that right in front of all the bars where people are often under the influence and pursuing other sorts of antisocial behavior. And there's no way to counteract it or dilute it because it's really cut off and isolated. And removing those that car-dominated space and putting more, you know, more activities right in there, it seems a little bit counterintuitive maybe, but there's a lot of evidence that that that's a successful strategy for countering antisocial behavior is to is to counter it with bringing people in who are doing other things you know bringing in children and families and bringing in people who are even responsibly consuming alcohol for example sitting outside and having one drink and enjoying the weather or whatever you know in the summertime that makes a big difference in in the overall feeling and 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 comfort level of people to use that public space so we're just about out of time but I want to just point out that these ideas that we have come up with for for the plaza we didn't come up with them from outer space or from thin air these are things that have been su- successfully implemented in other cities. So what what we're talking about is what they're teaching at graduate level planning courses on how to design a resilient, successful city. So this has been employed, for example, on Church Street in Burlington, Vermont, a lovely car-free shopping district where there is public art and there are accommodations and there are restaurants that are right on the street that can provide a, a sense of community in place. So I, I, I'm personally very excited about the future of Arcadis Plaza and developing it in a way that puts people first and not automobiles. Yeah. And can I just throw out there, we have, if you're interested, there's some of that research we put together into a sort of white paper that you can find on our website, which is transportationpriorities.org. And I encourage you to go and check that out. And you can also see a lot of our research and, and commentary on other issues, general plans, regional transportation plans, and other important stuff we haven't gotten to talk about today, but along these same lines of advocating for planning transportation for people first. And just thank you for bringing that up. I'm going to have to have you on again to talk about other general plan updates. The city of Eureka has just released their draft general plan, and it is exciting. Let me tell you what. So maybe I can get you in the studio and we can pepper Rob Homeland from, from the city of Eureka with questions. That would be great. All right. Sounds good. All right. This has been the Eco News Report. 
My name is Tom Wheeler, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I was just speaking with Colin Fisk of the Coalition for Responsible Transportation Priorities. Check them out at transportationpriorities.org. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to the archived programs page at khsu.org. Previous shows are also posted on the North Coast Environmental Center's website. And hey, we're a podcast now, folks. Download us with your favorite podcast app. It's cool. You can listen to us on the bus like I do. Yeah, check me out on the bus. Transportation. Woo! The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks, as always, to Fred for engineering. What a great guy. He always keeps his show sounding great. Join us again next week right here for the Eco News Report. <laughs>